0: This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In this third and final episode on big tech mergers and competition policy, we continue our discussion on how competition authorities evaluate mergers and implement competition policy. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to give you an idea of the size of these tech mergers. So let me quote some numbers I got from PC Mag, a computer magazine. These numbers are large. Let's take the purchase of Fitbit by Google. Many of us are familiar with this easy to use fitness tracker. Well, Google reportedly paid over $2 billion for it. And it paid over $3 billion for Nest, a smart home product line. Amazon got Whole Foods for almost $14 billion and Salesforce bought Tableau for almost 16 billion. So it's not just the biggest tech that are going this way and not just companies that you may have thought of as tech, but others as well. Well, you get the idea, these deals are big. The markets they cover are big and the consumers they affect are many. So let's continue to find out how competition authorities deal with mergers. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumeen Islam, host of Tell Me How, and today we have with us Professor Michael Katz from Berkeley's Economics Department and Haas School of Business. Among other positions he has held, he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economic Analysis at the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice and Chief Economist of the Federal Communications Commission of the U.S. Welcome back to our podcast, Michael.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back.
0: In last week's episode, we began the discussion by considering what competition authorities look for in markets. And we will start today by considering how tech companies wishing to merge may present their case. So Michael, let's go on to how the merging parties would try to justify their case. What is it that they would have to show?
1: So if the antitrust enforcers um, establish their prime affairs, case then the burden shifts to the merging parties to say well the presumption may look bad for us but here's a reason that the merger is really okay and you know one way they would do that is just to attack relevant markets and say well the relevant market isn't defined correctly or the market shares or tell a misleading story say because you say well we have a high market share today but you know there's a new technology coming in and our market share is about to drop rapidly and so looking at concentration was misleading, or else they will argue that, well, we can't do anything bad as a result of the merger because if we tried to raise prices, there'd be a flood of entry and that will discipline us. And then finally, they'll argue that their merger efficiencies, which we've talked about before as a potential pro of a merger, they'll say, well, if you let us merge, we're going to have lower costs, better products. And yes, we're not competing with each other anymore, but we'll be much stronger competitors against everyone else. And that's an argument, for example, that was made by T-Mobile and Sprint when they merged in the US. And I should disclose there that I testified on behalf of T-Mobile, that there would be very large efficiencies and that the firms would be, have so much lower costs and better products that even though they wouldn't compete with each other anymore, they would compete more vigorously with AT&T and Verizon in particular.
0: We talked a lot about the process in the United States, but how might this approach compare with that of other jurisdictions?
1: So a lot of other jurisdictions do something similar at a very high level, although the legal institutions are different and some of the details of the process are different. But let's talk about the European Commission. So there, the commission itself would assess um, whether it believed there would be harm to competition. sort of similar to what the U.S. would do. And then it would ask the question and it would hear from the parties about whether their merger efficiencies could potentially offset the loss of competition so that on net competition would actually be stronger. You'd lose the competition between the merging parties, but you would gain the strength from the efficiencies. And so at that very high level is similar to what the U.S. does. Again, the legal process is different because the commission makes that assessment first. And then if they try to block a merger, ultimately the the parties can then appeal that decision to the courts. In practice, there's certainly differences in how the European Commission or other national agencies um, interpret evidence and to what extent they'll give weight to efficiencies and things like that. But at a very high level, the thinking is similar.
0: But as is the case with all institutional structures, a lot depends on the institutional history. Um, of the countries, for example, when the European Union uh, came into being and and eventually when the European Commission's uh, competition authority came into being, they were also concerned about creating a, a single unified market. So I just wanted to highlight that I guess in different jurisdictions, the history of uh, matters a lot for the legal forms that each authority takes. So um, I guess you'd agree with that or not.
1: No, I, I certainly do agree with that, and you know the history matters to the sorts of judgments people make too. Because you know, the fact of the matter is, we can bring in a lot of evidence and a lot of data, but in the end, most of these cases involve matters of judgment. And I would say, for example, that the European Commission historically has been, you know, much more suspicious of efficiencies probably than the U.S. authorities were, at least for the last several decades. I think going forward, we're going to see U.S. authorities um, even more skeptical of um, efficiencies. And I think actually we're seeing the U.S. probably going to move in some ways closer to the European view, whereas for decades the U.S. sort of accused Europe of being out of step and old-fashioned. Now it turns out that, in fact, the European view may have been what the the future of the U.S. rather than the old-fashioned view. But, yeah, history definitely matters.
0: I just wanted to talk quickly about all the information and expertise that's required to make all these decisions, right? I mean, this must be a complex affair to decide whether or not a potential merger is going to be anti-competitive. So can you speak a bit about where does one get data on all of this? I mean, I can just imagine some of our client countries, it must be so very hard to get the relevant information and, and even harder to think about the innovative impact on those markets. So So in the U.S., for example, where do you think there's enough expertise to deal with all of these issues and enough information?
1: So the problem we have in the U.S., I think, is when we get to the courts, because we have competition authorities that have a, a lot of resources, not enough resources. And in fact, there is legislation now to increase the resources they have. But still, they have substantial staff, substantial expertise and resources. I think the big problem we get to in the United States, though, is you get to the court, often a judge will see one antitrust case in his or her career. And as has become evident from our discussion earlier, (laughs) these things are very complex. And we haven't even gotten into some of the most complex things where, you know, the models we're talking about to predict the effects of a merger may be very complicated econometric models. Typically, the courts just lack the expertise to judge those models. And, you know, often very complicated economic arguments are made. So, I think it is a big problem for the U.S. that we have courts that are just not well positioned to be able to process the information and don't have the expertise needed. And that's not a criticism of the court. It's just that's, you know, that's not what they do. It's not what they're set up for. In other cases and in other countries, it may be a problem even getting access to the information in the first place for the, the competition authorities. But again, I think for the U.S., it's more about the ability of the courts to process all the stuff that's thrown at them.
0: Yes, and and you can imagine that uh, the ability of the courts to process this, even if they had the information in other countries, in many poorer countries would be even more difficult. So is there anything that can be done about this problem? Is there any way to make policymaking a bit simpler?
1: So, I mean, people have talked about trying to do that. I mean, one thing is to try to develop, you know, simpler, bright-line presumptions and you know some of the stuff against big tech you can see that way if you have something where it says all right you're not allowed to merge if your annual revenues are above some level then that's something that you know a court could apply and so you could start moving to very simple bright line rules the problem with that is i don't think that any of us you know whether we're talking about the courts or or legislative bodies or academicians really know enough about sort of the overall set of effects in the world or, you know, all the different possibilities to come up with really good, simple rules. One of the things I think we should do more where we can is instead of simplifying the process is we should help the courts become more expert. And a way to do that would be to have a court appointed experts, right? So in the U.S., for example, the private parties typically, and and also the government, would bring in witnesses, right? They would hire expert witnesses, expert economists, and you're sworn to tell the truth, but the fact is the witnesses, you know, tend to act as advocates for one side or the other. I should say that's different in some other countries. In Australia, if you're an expert witness, you have to sign a statement that you realize your obligation is to help the court, not help your client. But in any case, the U.S. is much more of an adversarial system and I think it'd be helpful for the court to have its own expert, and the expert would you know, help them wade through this complex economic testimony.
0: Let's go back a bit to the question of evidence. What are mm-hmm. the other types of evidence that you would look at? I mean, if you can't sit there and you know, if you're not experts, but you want to just generally look at some business evidence to understand whether or not you know the market's going to become anti-competitive, what sort of data... You, would you ask for?
1: In some cases, what you ask for, these are data as we traditionally understand it. I mean, you look for, um, for example, what sort of sales data the firms have. A lot of firms, I think, around the world, for example, have Salesforce data where they track sales opportunities. And the firm's own database, it will say things like, well, okay, here's who we're competing against. Here's who ultimately won the deal. Here's what we're hearing from the potential buyer about who's our toughest competition or what kind of deal we have to beat. And that kind of um, information can be very helpful then in understanding the nature of competition. So if you look at the merging parties, Salesforce databases, for example, or it could be some other vendor, do you see them constantly mentioning each other? And more generally, you can look at business documents and do you see the business's strategy documents and things saying, look, these are the guys we really worry about, and it turns out they're naming the company they want to merge with. And if you see that, um, that can be a source of concern. And you can also do things like, uh, coming back to looking at more traditional data, if you have markets where there's sort of individual negotiations and bidding, you may be able to get a bidding database, and then you can look for things like, well, did the presence of the other firm of these two merging firms? Did the presence of the other firm make the firm we're looking at, you know, charge lower prices? You can build an econometric model. So there's just a huge range of things you can look at, you know, as I say, ranging from just qualitative business documents and seeing what it is they discuss and do the firms involved track each other and, and respond to each other to having data about, you know, how they price. Or when it comes to efficiencies, you start looking at data about how they operate, what their costs look like, things like that. It's just, there's just a a vast range that can be both helpful and overwhelming. I mean, in, you know, U.S. merger cases, you can have, you know, millions of pages of documents and terabytes of data involved. Mm. Um, And so it really can be um, overwhelming. In fact, I certainly heard rumors, and I believe them, of firms trying to bury the U.S. antitrust authorities in data saying, okay, fine, you've asked us these questions. We're going to just send you terabytes of data because we think that's going to overwhelm your system and be useless to you. And so, and that's for U.S. antitrust authorities, which are among the best resourced in the world. So you know, there definitely can be problems there that antitrust enforcers can just lack the resources they need to go up against some of these really huge firms.
0: All right. So could you name a few reforms? You've mentioned one already, which is To have court-appointed experts and maybe look at, I guess this is not a reform, but you also mentioned that there should be many kinds of alternative sources of data that you might want to look at, but what sort of reforms do you think merger policy would benefit from?
1: As you said, I think having court-appointed experts, you know, sort of forming the process, in terms of the data, the reform I'd like to see is less attention on formal market definition. It's using sort of the same information that would go into market definition, but focus more directly on the question of how strongly do the merging firms compete with one another? What does the evidence say? What does the evidence tell us about whether there are other firms that they would continue to compete with after the merger? So get less hung up on how do we put things in this market definition box of in or out? And just, as I said, more directly say, what does the evidence tell us about how strongly these firms compete with each other and how strongly they compete with third parties? Another thing I would do that's, well, it's not specific to the U.S. entirely, I think it's an issue that comes up in other countries as well, is that it's very hard to block a merger where you say, okay, the firms don't compete that strongly against one another today, but we're worried that in the future, they would compete with each other very strongly, and the merger is going to stop that from happening. And that's the sort of concern people have as we talked about with facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and whatsapp, the concern was not oh, these firms are competing really strongly at the, were competing really strongly at the time of the merger with Facebook and social networking they weren't the concern was, oh, by buying them up you've stopped them from emerging as competitors and so I think what we need to do in the u s is have legislation that essentially lowers the standard of proof or lowers the burden on antitrust enforcers to block a merger on the grounds that it's going to harm potential competition versus actual competition.
0: Basically, what I hear you saying is that, of course, in the developing policy world, we feel this every day, that policymaking is really a very complex affair, that no matter how much data and information you have, you need good sound analysis to complement it. And then on top of that, you need judgment and experience you know, in order to figure out what the right answer might be. So I understand that. Now, one thing that I realized we hadn't really talked about, and that was vertical mergers, because most of what we've been talking about are horizontal mergers, right? So if you could just say a few words quickly about vertical mergers and are those always legal because they could lead to company structures that lead to reduced competition in the future, right? So I'm just wondering, are they always legal or or not?
1: All right. So let me step back just in case there are people listening who are wondering what the difference between a horizontal merger and a vertical merger is. Um, It turns out vertical mergers are not totally well defined. But when we talk about horizontal mergers, what we tend to mean is or we do mean as firms that are competing directly with one another, they're offering the same product. So you could think of, you know, Google's search service and then Microsoft's um, Bing search services. They're both offering search services. They're competing against each other or two automobile manufacturers. With a vertical merger, we're talking about joining two firms where one of them supplies an input to the other. You know, Another merger I was involved in was with AT&T, Time Warner, where Time Warner was creating content and then AT&T was distributing that content. So they weren't competing with each other directly. One of them was supplying a product to the other. And the sorts of concerns that vertical mergers can raise, and in fact were raised in that particular case, is, well, if I have, say, control, own the content and the distribution when I compete against other distributors, am I going to withhold the content from them? I say, wait a minute, why would I let you use my content to then compete with my distribution arm? So there is this concern that there can be this harm to competition. And it's been a longstanding concern. I mean, I was in the U.S. Department of Justice in I guess, 2001, and we used to look at vertical mergers and worry about them. Although I think in the end we didn't challenge any because we thought it was just too hard but I think there is an increasing sentiment that vertical mergers can raise issues, but they are very difficult to challenge under current legal standards.
0: Thank you, Michael. So we've actually uh, covered a lot of ground and I want to thank you for, for all of that and for um, revealing to us how complex it is to actually do competition policymaking right. But thank you very much. Actually, is there anything else you'd like to add before we end?
1: So I'd like to say two things. First of all, I would like to thank you because I've really enjoyed this and I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you and to your listeners. But the other thing I would say is, look, it is extremely complex. As you said, there's a lot of matters of judgment. And that's why I think one of the most important pieces of advice for antitrust authorities around the world is to talk to each other, and there are international networks and their bases for doing this, um, is for the different agencies to learn from each other and to, to share expertise.
0: And to collaborate generally. Yes. Thank you very much, Michael. That was really very, very interesting. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you.
0: Well, listeners, what did we learn today? Firstly, Competition authorities everywhere broadly aim to protect consumer welfare by focusing on how the market functions. But legal institutions, organizational structures, and procedural details vary between countries. The history and culture of a nation influence the presumptions held, the interpretation of evidence, and the final outcome. Secondly, substantial expertise is needed to evaluate merger cases. Expertise needed within the competition authority, within the courts, and within the legal profession. But developing countries in particular suffer from capacity constraints. To deal with complexity, countries may adopt rules of thumb or bright-line assumptions, such as just limiting the size a company can grow to, even if such methods have shortcomings and sometimes courts appoint experts to help them. Thirdly, given how important experience and judgment are to decision-making, it's recommended that competition authorities in different countries share their expertise, learn from each other, and collaborate. Actively participating in international networks is a way to do this. Thank you, and bye for now. You can find more information about the podcast on worldbank.org forward slash tell me how if you've got questions or comments we'd love to hear from you you can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening see you in two weeks